Welcome to Pragmatic. Pragmatic is a weekly discussion show contemplating the practical application of technology, exploring the real-world trade-offs we look at how great ideas are transformed into products and services that can change our lives. Nothing is as simple as it seems. This episode is sponsored by ManyTrix, makers of helpful apps for the Mac. Visit ManyTricks, all one word, dot com slash pragmatic for more information about their apps, Butler, Chemo, Leech, Moom, Usher, Desktop Curtain, TimeSync, Name Mangler, and Witch. If you visit the URL, you can use the code PRAGMATIC25 in the shopping cart to save 25% on any ManyTricks product. This episode is also sponsored by LifeX. Visit LifeX spelled L-I-F-X dot co slash pragmatic for more information and to take advantage of a special discount off their amazing LED smart bulbs exclusively for pragmatic listeners. We'll talk more about them during the show. I'm your host, John Chigi, and I'm joined uh, today by my guest host, uh, Joel Hausman. How are you, Joel? Hi, John. Doing well. How are you? I'm doing very, very well. Thank you very much. Thanks for uh, coming on the show. Yeah, sure. Thanks for having me. This is a real treat. Yeah, it's um, it's it's when we when I sort of got in touch and sent you through through the topic list, you you picked a topic um, that I was a bit concerned if I'd be able to find someone who was uh, who who was keen to cover it. But I'm really glad that you did. But before we dive into that, I just a little quickly want to say. Um, a few thank yous. Uh, after our last episode, um, there's I've just had an overwhelming response to episode 30 uh, about coffee. Uh, I was concerned about covering coffee, but I've had many dozens of um, tweets back, particularly just great feedback. Um, so, clearly, a lot of people have enjoyed it. So, thank you, everyone, for all that feedback. Really appreciate it. But I also specifically want to thank uh, Dean Johnson for the lovely review on iTunes. Uh, it's been a while since I've mentioned iTunes reviews, but just a reminder, if you are enjoying the show, please leave a rating in iTunes. Really would appreciate it. Um, it, it does help. So, uh, so thank you for that. And um, without further ado, um, I guess we should probably start talking about uh, the weather. Or, well, maybe not specifically what the weather is like right now, but more about <laughs> predicting the weather. <laughs> right. So, so could you just start by telling me why you chose that topic? Because I think it's an interesting story. Well, um, I've always been fascinated by uh, weather, and, and, and I think it dates back to when I was a child, and that where I grew up in, in southwestern Virginia, we're sort of at the, uh, we were in the base of the Appalachian Mountains, um, and I really, really, really enjoyed snow in the winter because, uh, because the Virginia Highway Department is so poorly equipped to deal with winter storms, it meant that we got out of school. Um, so whenever I would hear, uh, you know, the TV would be on the background and I would hear the, the, the weather forecaster mention that there's maybe snow coming, I would, I would be glued to uh, the news to hear the forecast or, or when we we finally got cable TV um, around the, the early 90s, mid-90s. I would, I would watch the, uh, the Weather Channel back when that station was still a good channel to watch um, and, okay. and, and would, would be glued to that channel for, for days on end prior to any storm coming to determine, uh, you know, it, what, what, were we going to get any snow and could, could we get out of school? Um, so, so the fascination uh, was was initially with just snowstorms in the winter, and then uh, I started to pay attention to things like hurricanes 
in in the summer and the fall during hurricane season and then um, tornadoes although with tornadoes you usually don't get live coverage of them on TV because usually they're done and over with before anyone has a chance to to, to get on the scene of, of where it's happening and, and they're a bit more dangerous um, but yeah so it, bit, it dates yeah. back to a childhood fascination um, and then I almost majored in meteorology in, at university until I, I realized how much math was required for, for a meteorology <laughs> degree. Um, yeah. And, 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 and I had a, a brief fascination and, 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 and dream of being a storm chaser in the Midwest chasing tornadoes until I realized that it's actually really, really hard to get a job being a storm chaser because, um, it's pretty much only funded by grants at universities and, and it's pretty much, it's very low paying and, and you pretty, you, you pretty much have to be like a grad student and you only do it for a few years um, until you've got your degree and moved on to an actual real job. Um, it's also kind of dangerous, don't you think? Yeah. Well, that yeah. too. And, 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 and these days there's actually become a bit of a problem in the Midwest because there are so many storm chasers and right. at least for a, a system that it has a lot of warning that they know many days in advance it's going to come through an area, the storm chasers all descend on that area and do and clog up the roads and impede emergency responders from getting to the to the scene. Um, all sorts of things that that give storm chasers a really bad name. And, I, and I'm actually very grateful I didn't choose that path now because I think I would have regretted it. So do you, do you think that uh, Jean de Bont and, uh, has something to answer for with the, the movie Twister? Is, it, is that... Uh... <laughs> I, I think maybe um, Twister. I, I, I remember really enjoying that movie when I was younger. And then I went back and watched it uh, about a year ago. And, and having seen it as, as an adult, um, I was like, wow, this movie really isn't as good as I remember it being. <laughs> no, and then you get no, the, the kind yeah. of really cheesy 90s special effects. Um, and, yeah. And, yeah. <laughs> I, 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 still, I still have a soft spot sort of for that movie, but there's just so many gaping holes in it. And it's like, oh, God, really? Yeah, anyway. they, it's, it's kind of like uh, when, when you're, when you're uh, a technology geek and you watch any sort of... Um, a movie and they mention technology in it and they get details wrong and you just kind of wince. I imagine yeah, that's Twister it. is like that for meteorologists. And I suspect you're right. Yes. Well, cool. Well, thank you for that background. That, that, that's, that's good to hear. I've always been fascinated by weather prediction because I, I and for me, I guess it's sort of, <laughs> it's it started with a barometer for me. I'll get to that in a minute. I'm, I'm jumping ahead here. I, I really think we should probably dive in. So, um, I guess the problem with weather prediction of any kind of accuracy, and I mean long-term, beyond just what you can see on the horizon, that's going to require some kind of communication method that travels faster than the weather travels. And the problem with that historically is that we really haven't had that until recently. Uh, so around about the 19... Sorry, the 1830s, I should say, uh, when the telegraph became widespread enough, it was actually possible to do that. But um, in any case, uh, early on, uh, they... Uh, they relied heavily on on uh, the synoptic, a synoptic chart and surface level barometric pressures and everything. And actually, the the word synoptics uh, derived from a Greek word which is uh, uh, synoptikos, which uh, means uh, seen together. Which is when I looked up what that meant, I'm like, okay, sure, I get how that has something to do with weather. But anyway, never mind. But my point is that the um, surface level barometric pressure was much easier to measure, yeah, you know, along with temperature and wind speed and direction and everything. 
But it really only tells a very, very small part of the story because once you go up a few, you know, well, really even 30, 40 meters or whatever, you know, you know everything changes. It's not just this, this little thin skin at the ground level that's the problem. So anyway, so the idea of, of, of a barometer when I was a kid fascinated me. And that's when I first sort of got interested in it was when I successfully managed to kill the barometer. Because, I mean, I wanted to know what was inside because, you know, that's just what you do when you're a kid. So, of I pulled the barometer. Oh, yeah. You know, got a screwdriver, inflated screwdriver and opened it up. And, oh, cool. It's all empty inside. What was that funny hissing noise when I opened up the metal <laughs> bit? So, yeah, these things, I don't know if, you, if, if, if you've ever seen one. For, if for listeners, if you've ever seen one, it's like... A, uh, th- think of it like a um, it's it's like a me- it's like a metal can, uh, but it's relatively thin. And the um, uh, it's, it's well, this particular one I was looking at was circular, and it had a series of ridges, circular ridges that were concentric, and they got smaller as you got towards the outside. The whole thing was really only about an, an inch, if that thick. So you know, about twenty five millimeters thick, maybe a bit more than that, maybe thirty millimeters, something like that, a bit over an inch, and. It's uh, fully sealed to a set known pressure. And as the barometric pressure changes, the air pressure on the outside changes, then it pushes uh, that actual pressure vessel in and out. And that movement in and out is picked up by a, uh, a, by a, a spring. And that spring drives the, the, the needle on the dial to show you the barometric pressure. So, of course, if you puncture that pressure vessel, whoops, you just busted your barometer. So, yay. This was my first foray into... Yeah, anyway, never mind that. I also grew up. Yeah, I know. I feel terrible about it even now, but never mind. Well, um, you you have to take things apart to figure out how they work. Exactly. It's just my problem was I couldn't put them back together again. So well, you know, that I was... think that's a common problem. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. A clock suffered a similar fate. What can I say? But anyway, um, yes. And later computers. Although actually, I got good at putting computers back together, so that wasn't such a bad sad story. That one. I, but anyway, I used to do that with old hard drives and a hammer. <laughs> seriously yes oh man I, I would have uh back back in the 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 mid to late 90s when when the largest hard drives were uh say 20 or 40 gigabytes um i i and, and hard drives had had gotten cheap i i would upgrade them frequently and old ones that i had no more use for or, or let's say you know it died or something like that um yeah. if it was out of warranty and i couldn't rma it i would uh get a you know flathead screwdriver and hammer and prize its case apart cool Nice, uh, nice silver spinning disc inside. That's right. cool. Yep. <laughs> oh dear. That's mm. yeah, that was fun. Anyway, okay. There you go. That's uh, that's our geek cred for the episode. There we go. We'll move on. Um, <laughs> so numerical modeling is pretty much uh, around about. I think it was about the 1920s or thereabouts. Uh, was all well and good, but it was very well numerically, computationally, mathematically. Intensive, which is something something you alluded to just earlier with your career decisions, uh, and it really wasn't all that useful until the 1950s or so, where computers started to happen. I mean, initially analog computers, of course, but yeah, you know, and digital computers, and as their power increased, numerical models could actually start to be more useful. And of course, also in the 50s, they were launching satellites, so you know they started to launch um, satellites to you know, monitor the weather. So. All of that collected more data. Always need more data. You know, more data, more data, because your models are going to run better if you have more data. Right. And and obviously, then you collect all the data, then it becomes an exponentially bigger problem. So you need a faster and faster computer to compute all this extra data that you're you're dragging in. And 
as a, based on, I, I knew that they could look ahead uh, a, a week or two, but when I actually just brushed up on this before we did the episode, um, I was surprised that they're saying that some of the best models uh, will give you six to seven days of relatively accurate prediction. Yeah. And that's the best they can do. That's the best they can do now. And yeah. some of these, so, that's seriously crazy. So some and and even then some of the models, um, at least in the the east in the east coast of the U.S. where where I actually feel qualified to speak about, um, sure. I don't know about how it is and and maybe even on the west coast or on other countries, but um, if we have a a say a winter storm coming in um, in February and we know it's going to hit sometime between you know 8 p.m. on Wednesday night and you know 9 a.m. on Thursday morning. Um, you, you'll get you'll get model runs that will say as far out as say four, you know 14 days that it's going to happen, but you rarely see at least good forecasters actually produce forecasts on on their website or on their TV show or whatever it is their their mechanism for forecasting um, to to say oh well, well there's going to be a snowstorm two weeks from now because they know <laughs> that the models will deviate enough that that they will look like an idiot if if they come out and say there's going to be a blizzard and nothing happens now that's yeah, not to say exactly. that still doesn't happen but um yeah. uh you know uh, certain models at least um have a reputation even for being accurate uh 48 hours out but as you get closer to the to the event they become less accurate and then certain other models are have a have a reputation for being inaccurate 48 hours out but when they get in the last 12 hours they become more accurate so so uh, at least for the forecasters in our area where we live they will take bits and pieces of information from different models depending upon their their accuracy and their reputation for being accurate during certain pro- time periods prior to the event happening um and and that the the when a model predicts something and it turns out to be accurate that's that that the terminology they use to, to call that is called verification so the model verifies the actual prediction um cool. and and it, the two primary models that we use here are the uh the the gfs which is known as the north american model which is funded by uh, NOAA. it's paid for by the federal government and yep. um, the European model, which uh, I'm less, I'm a little hazy on how that gets funded, but I, I think it's money from the European Union um, and different European countries. Um, and the European Union, the European model actually has a reputation for being a bit more accurate on average than the, the GFS model. Um, but okay. it also is less accurate at predicting certain things, like a a certain type of severe storm in the winter may be more accurate under the GFS than like a certain type of winter storm uh, uh, from from the European model, you know. Okay. Interesting. Cool. Well, those models, I um, I was hoping you'd talk about those because I, <laughs> I don't know as much about them. So, uh, but I don't want, I, um, I just want to quickly talk a little bit more about inputs to those models just real quickly. Um, so, right. yeah, that's, that's really cool and hold those thoughts. One of the things that I always found interesting was getting the data for these models. So, you've got ground stations that, that monitor these things, but you also have, which far, I think is far more interesting, uh, are weather balloons. And I say far more interesting. I mean, as interesting as a balloon could possibly be, but you know. <clears throat> so, these the weather balloons that they launch, they launch them usually twice a day. And what they'll do is they have uh, something on... They have, they basically carry a payload and that, and that payload has sensors in there typically... 
for pressure, temperature, and relative humidity. But they have a transponder that also allows their position to be tracked. So you can use them to estimate uh, wind speed direction at different altitudes as well. So and they, they'll they'll transmit every one to two seconds, you know, the data and everything. And I think the more modern ones have also got um, data loggers on board and everything. So the the thing is that they're launched with uh, either hydrogen or helium, and they start at about six feet in diameter, which is about one point eight meters, which is quite you know reasonable. So you know, av- average, well, decent sort of height and uh, size. But as they go up in the upper atmosphere and there's less air pressure, of course, the uh, the balloon swells because um, you know. PV equals NRT, which can be rewritten as P1V1 over T1 equals P2T2 over V2, uh, T2. Since if you if you decrease the external amount of pressure, then the volume will increase proportionally. So by the time you get up to the upper atmosphere, way up high, uh, it actually swells up to about 20 feet in diameter, which is huge. That's, that's six, about six meters in diameter, at which point it, then the actual balloon material will pop and then the payload uh, will drop down like a, like a rock, pretty much. And it has a um, a balloon, uh, not a balloon. It has a parachute uh, mechanism, which is uh, triggered by pressure. So when it reaches a certain altitude, uh, it pops parachute, and then it, it glides back down. And then the they recover it, and then they uh, refit it ready for the next release. So that was something that I um, I always found kind of interesting the way that they did that. I, I when I was younger, I used to think that you should set these balloons up. I used to think, gee, that's really wasteful, you know, because they're just they're <laughs> right. throwing away all these balloons, right? Where well, they're just going right. to float away. <laughs> Anyway, so there you go. Uh, so and, and they'll feed that data into those models that you were talking about. And that, that's key information because you need that information from higher up because you need to know what the um, higher level air masses are doing. Otherwise, right. and, you... Yeah. And, and two other sources of data, uh, especially when you're dealing with, say, cyclones or typhoons or hurricanes, depending on what you call them and where you live, are buoy data uh, off the coast yeah. of a lot of countries. Um, and, and even some of them way out in, in the middle of the Atlantic or the Pacific, um, they'll, uh, you know, of course, anchor a buoy off the, the, the ocean floor and they'll yep. put a little weather station on the buoy. And then at least for, uh, I'm not sure how it's done with cyclones and, and typhoons, but at least for hurricanes mm-hmm. in the Atlantic, NOAA also funds a, a something called uh, the Hurricane Hunters that are, uh, I think they are... Usually flown by military personnel, but like operating under the office of, of NOAA. Um, and they, they have these specially equipped planes that are filled with radar instrument, uh, radar and, and all sorts of weather sensors and, 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 and that sort of thing. And yep. they will take off and make regularly scheduled flights into the hurricane um, at, at various altitudes. I mean, usually they're, they're pretty high up, but they, they basically will fly like a crisscross zigzag formation um, or, or zigzag flight route uh, uh, diagonally across the hurricane uh, from one side of the eye to the other through the middle of the eye. Um, and then they'll, they'll turn and do another pass, you know, so basically they want to hit all four sides of the eye wall and get different readings at different altitudes. And, and as they're flying through, they drop little sensors from the plane that, that, you know, fall down through the hurricane and measure um, the pressure and the wind speed and all that sort of thing at various heights within the storm. Um, and, and those are really important, especially for hurricanes, because, you know, otherwise all of our sensors are just at ground level and you can't exactly float a weather balloon up through a hurricane and have it go straight up in the air. <laughs> no, that's not going to work out, is it? No. <laughs> um, but yeah, so, so all, I mean, especially with, with, uh, with storms coming in off the coast, um, the, and I think I think even some 
some ships, like cargo ships, tankers and all, will have weather stations on board that also feed into the models. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you've got all these ships out in the ocean. It makes sense to be collecting data from them. I, right. I, I wouldn't be surprised if that yeah, was Yeah, I, I, I'm pretty sure, uh, I don't think all of them by any means, but some of them, um, if they're equipped with uh, 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 modern enough weather equipment um, and that's able to, to, to radio its data back, and, and I'm, I'm not sure how that works, whether or not the, the, the owners of the particular models pay them for the data or it's just like a volunteered or whatnot, although I think it's in the best interest of the ships to volunteer the information. It's just going to help them too. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd suspect that would be the case. But yeah, it's uh, more, more data, better models. And that's right. what it comes back to. Right. Because the, Which, the model and, is and, only as good. And the more data, the bigger your computer has to be. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Okay, cool. So before we go any further, I just want to talk about our first sponsor just really quickly. Uh, and that's Many Tricks. So Many Tricks are a great software development company whose apps do, well, you guessed it, Many Tricks. Uh, their apps include Butler, Chemo, Leech, Moom, Usher, Desktop Curtain, TimeSync, Name Mangler, and Witch. There's so much to talk about for each app. We're just going to focus on a different one each week. And this week, we're going to talk about Witch, spelled W-I-T-C-H. So think about which as a supercharger for your command tab app switcher on your Mac. Without which, you just get whichever window is on top for a given app. And if you're like me and you've got three or four documents open at once in Pages or in Word, let's say, you know, then it takes another step after that to grab the specific document that you want. With which, you get a beautifully simple pop-up that lists every window that's open across spaces, displays. You get to pick exactly the one that you're looking for. There's even a neat quick look preview of the Windows content so you can be sure it's the window you're looking for before you select it. And that alone makes it worth grabbing. But you can tweak the time delay when the, before when the switcher actually opens. You can show or hide specific apps or windows that you do or you don't want included. Uh, as well as you can customize the zoom, close, minimize behaviors for when you do select uh, specific windows. So I've had a play with which this week and I can see why people rave about it. If you haven't tried it, download the trial, have a play with which yourself. You can download a free trial of it from manytricks, or one word, dot com slash witch, W-I-T-C-H, and you can try it out for yourself. If you do fall in love with it, then you can buy it from that page or you can buy it through the Mac App Store for $14 US. However, if you visit that URL before the 17th of August and you can take advantage of a special discount off their very helpful apps exclusively for pragmatic listeners. So simply use Pragmatic25 in the discount code box in the shopping cart to receive 25% off. This offer is only available to Pragmatic listeners for a limited time, so take advantage of it while you can. Thank you to Many Tricks for sponsoring Pragmatic. So one of the other things, Joel, that I find uh, just blows my mind about this whole weather prediction thing is when you consider all of the variables. So I, I got to thinking, okay, the sun is shining, well, presumably. Right. Let's say you've got cloud cover that just comes over for whatever reason, multitude of reasons that there's cloud cover. So that's going to reduce the amount of sunlight that heats the ground up in a localized area. That's going to reduce the surface level temperature. That's going to change your evaporation rate. It's going to affect, therefore, the local air pressure in a, in a localized area. And that's going to affect the pressure gradients between low and high pressure zones around that area. That will then change the wind speed around that area as right. the high pressure air flows in the lower pressure zones 
And suddenly this whole thing just got so damn complicated. It's like, now I understand just how hard this is. All from yeah, some heavy so, cloud cover, right? So, so what you're alluding to is uh, something that I think think many people have heard of of this phrase but it, it it's referred to as uh the slang term is the butterfly effect yes, um, yes which which deals with chaos theory if you're if you've i think i think the movie jurassic park exposed more people to the concept of the chaos theory in the general yeah. public than any other pop culture reference i think i think you're right about that yes the whole little the drop of water on the back right like when exactly he's, when he's when he's chatting up the next future mrs malcolm yeah right exactly yeah yep <laughs> That was that was a that was a wonderful scene. I I oh, what's the name of that actor? He's so good. Uh, uh, Jeff Goldblum. Yeah, Goldblum, and he's always he plays the same character in every movie. <laughs> he's in. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, that was good. But yes, but, uh, exactly. Yeah, chaos theory, yeah. butterfly effect. Mm, that's the one. So this this was pioneered by an American mathematician named Ed, Edward Lorenz, um, who was a mathematician and a meteorologist. Um, this was back in the uh, '60s, I think. 1961. Yep, sounds um, right. And it, Lorenz was using a, uh, a computer model to, to run a weather prediction, basically. Um, and the the story goes that, uh, and and I want to be accurate when I say this, that that as a shortcut on a number in the sequence, um, he entered the decimal uh, .506 by mistake instead of entering... Point five zero six one two seven. You know, he left off three decimal places, and yep. the result of this prediction was a completely different weather scenario. Uh, and and it, he he noticed he noticed that the prediction didn't really do what he thought it was going to do. And then he went back and checked his data and realized that he had left off three decimals. And when he ran it again with the three decimals, a completely different scenario came out. And and based on this observation, um, he wrote a uh, he, he published a theoretical study that that was uh, well known in, in at the time that was called deterministic non-periodic flow, um, which basically is the scientific way of saying uh, the the butterfly effect or the butterfly theory. Um, yeah. And and he he would then present this paper at you know some sort of math mathematical or meteorological um, conference. And in in summing up his talk on the brochure or, or however it was published, another of his colleagues uh, su- suggested saying that um, if the theory were correct, one flap of a seagull's wings could change the course of weather forever. And then Lorenz kind of borrowed this this idea of this phrase and and changed it around to be more elegant and and basically said does the flap of a butterfly's wings in brazil set off a tornado in texas and thus the the concept of the butterfly effect was born yeah exactly that's it's fascinating how that came about but but you're absolutely right and 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 there's so many interactions and so many things to model that i suppose theoretically and this is the you know if you could monitor every single air molecule in the world and mathematically yeah. simulate all of them and have the, the big s- enough supercomputer to compute all of that data that's right then it should be possible to predict with complete accuracy however that is incredibly unrealistic yeah. when you think about it so it's the sort of thing that may never happen or if it or if it does happen it's going to be a long 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 way off so yeah yeah 
So one of the things that I uh, that they do, uh, you know, with uh, is, is they run what well, essentially it's Monte Carlo simulations, which I'm I'm familiar with through engineering, but uh, something that uh, I believe is referred to as ensemble forecasting. Right. Yeah. So yeah. this is this is pretty much the the, sort of, the peak yeah, of modern sort of, weather forecasting. Ensemble forecasting. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. So you put multiple model predictions. And you get a distribution of possible results, and you pick the, the essentially the most statistically likely possibility. Yeah, uh, the you, outcome you, of the multiples. You, yes. you might throw out if you get if you if you let's say let's say there's going to be you know a storm coming across the Midwest, and you run it against the European model and the GSF model and the Canadian model and the the North American model and the uh, the British model or the UK model the UK Met. Um, and and let's say oh and then there's there's a couple I'm leaving out there's the mid range model and the SRF the short range forecast model let's say two of those models have these way crazy outliers that don't say that, that aren't even close to what all the mo- other models are doing so so most modern forecasters will just kind of throw out those two uh, outliers and then average the others together um, and then whatever the average is is what you read in the paper that it's going to do tomorrow. Or, or not on the paper. I'm dating myself here. Uh, you know, on your favorite weather <laughs> website or... Or, or, or your weather really, Yeah, right. <laughs> Absolutely right. Yeah, couldn't have put it better. Exactly. So, one of the things that you mentioned just there briefly was um, the short-term forecast. Yeah. And one of the things that I, I found interesting just uh, about the... From the app... In the app point of... Uh, app world... Because often you want, I mean, okay, there's, I guess there's two real scenarios. There's, I'm, I'm sitting at home, I'm about to go out, or I'm in the office and I'm about to go out, and I want to know what the weather's doing. The, apart from the obvious, look out the window. Um, you know, you could use an app on your desktop, however, or on your PC. However, the other use case is that you're out and about, you're not next to a computer, you've got your phone with you, a smartphone, and it's you know running either Android, Windows Phone, iOS, whatever it's running. And you want to check what the weather is. You know, no one looks at the paper. Well, I was going to say, I almost said no one looks at the paper anymore. That's not true. They do. But so many more people, I think, are turning to apps. And that's one of the things that in the last few years, there's been a massive explosion of different apps that are available for looking at the weather. And some of them are just a window. They simply report on data supplied by different meteorological you know, di- di- divisions, departments, companies. Right, and and right. those those forecasts are put out at set intervals during the day. Yes. And, and some of the apps may only pull their data, you know, uh, based on whatever the last, you know, forecast was, which may be six hours old, 10 hours old, you know. Yeah, exactly. And, and yet there are other apps that actually have a dedicated service where they actually do their own interpretation. They do their own ensemble forecasting. Some of them some of them just look at the short-term models. And that was one of the ones I first sort of I came across was one called Dark Sky. And Dark Sky, I, I think, I'm not sure if it's still popular or not, but it has, it's not available in Australia, but I, I've heard people oh, rave about it. I think it, it is. I Dark think it Sky? is. I, I, it, Dark Sky is... is for, uh, I still love it. I use it daily. I've seen. It, I see it recommended all the time on, on social media. I, I think it's still very popular. Absolutely. Uh, I'm. Re- yeah, you're right. And I think it is very popular, but it's still not available in Australia. Which and I sort of looked at this, and uh, it's only currently available in the US, uh, Puerto Rico, and the British Isles. And there's all sorts of reasons for that, and it comes back to the data and the quality of the short-term forecast models. Right. And 
it's interesting because if you have a look into it, the, the a choice quote from one of the uh, I think it was one of the founders or whatever of the uh, of the company that makes Dark Sky. And the, the quote, it goes like this, Dark Sky doesn't make any effort to identify and compensate for chaotic storm behavior. So its primary point is to tell you what the rain's going to do in the next very short period of time, five, 10 minutes, half an hour, hour, something like that. It's not interested in the long-term forecast. It's not interested in what it's, what, what, what it's you know, like it says, it's not trying to compensate. It doesn't have a complex model. It just looks at a very short-term forecast. And the, and the beauty of that is that actually short-term weather prediction is kind of is relatively straightforward, provided you have enough lo- localized weather right. information. And the and reason, yeah. yeah, and I think the reason that isn't emphasized uh, short-range prediction, you know, uh, like and most of your traditional avenues for for getting weather predictions is that most people don't care enough about the weather to constantly check their phone every 30 minutes all day long to, to, to and, and if you did that you would know what was going to happen um yeah, you know true. most people only care enough to like look at it in the morning before they head to work to know whether they need to you know bring a coat with them or bring an umbrella you know yeah absolutely absolutely now when we were talking just before the show you also mentioned another app called radar scope can you tell me a bit about that yeah so radar scope um uh, uh it, if you look for uh, at least a, a radar app, an, an application on any device, Android, Windows computers, Macs, uh, iOS devices, if you want an app where you can get nice views of, of uh, a radar loop for your area um, and you want to know what the professionals use, uh, you should get radar scope. And, and, and don't let me scare you by saying that. It, it's, it's very, I forget how much they charge for it, but it's very inexpensive. Um, on the app store i'm checking now like like on the the it's a universal app for ios so it's ten ten dollars us um and you would have both the uh the the iphone and ipad version the mac version is is uh thirty thirty dollars us um but when you when you have the app you you get access to all of the different uh what what weather forecasters refer to as the products so when you're like I'm gonna launch Radar Scope right now, in Radar Scope, um, you get access to, for instance, the Super Res Reflectivity Tilt One, which is usually what you what the the, the it's your average um, a view of the the radar Doppler radar in your area. You get things like um, the vertically integrated liquid. So basically, you're looking at liquid in the atmosphere, twenty thirty thousand feet up. Um, I don't know if you've ever been driving along a road and you've looked in the distance and see rain falling from a cloud and it looks like it's falling through the sky, but it's not quite to the ground yet. That product would tell you, oh, there's rain above you. It's coming down. It just hasn't gotten to you yet, you know, because it's 20,000 feet up and falling from a a big thunder thunder cloud. Um, Radar scope is wonderful in that you can adjust its settings a little bit and say, well, show me six frames of data or 20 frames from data and hit loop and it kind of loops like an animated GIF. Um, yep. So you can, and, and especially with the iPhone and iPad version, uh, you can use the, the location services on your phone to have it pinpoint exactly on the map where you're at and then very easily tell based on the loop, 
oh well that storm's gonna comp- that storm that if you turn on the TV and and listen to the the weather guy he's like oh there's a storm coming in the area you can look on the apps like it's gonna completely miss me based on yeah. the speed it's going and where it's going or or wait a minute this one's gonna this one's gonna go right over top of us um, mm-hmm. and dark sky. Is is basically gives you a little snapshot of of and I love Dark Side because I own I own dogs and I have to walk them outside quite a bit. So Dark Sky yeah. was great for for when I lived closer into the city and couldn't really get a good view of the horizon um, to know what's coming. That that I could yep. say, oh, can can I take the dogs out right now and not get wet? And it's and it'll it would tell you say you know the rain is supposed to start in twenty minutes. So it's like great, I've got ten minutes to get them out, walk them, and get them back inside before it's going to begin raining. Radar scope will give you a a little bit bigger view because of course you can zoom out and see what what storms are doing five six hundred miles away from you. But based on how fast they're moving, and you get little timestamps on each frame, you can kind of roughly say, oh well, this big front that's five hundred miles west of us. You know, right now it's it's eight thirty a.m. here. Oh, this one should be to us by four or five o'clock this evening. So if I'm going to mow the yard today, I need to do it early afternoon. You know, before the rain gets here. Uh, radar, I, I love radar scope. It, it, it's it it kind of allows you to become your own, you know, amateur weather forecaster. Um, and then the more you look at the data and the more you watch storms pass overhead, you'll just get better at it. Cool. Well, from uh, from my perspective in Australia, one of the things that we sort of have rolled our eyes at for years is the uh, is Yahoo weather because right uh, yeah because the iPhone comes with Yahoo weather and it's generally accepted that the Yahoo weather is not really up to snuff compared to uh, the main local source in Australia is the Australian Bureau of Meteorology or the right know, everyone calls them BOM B O M for short <laughs> so yeah they're not they're not the bomb. But you know, anyway, don't mind that. Jeez, that is such a bad teenage joke. Anyway, point is, <laughs> point point is, oh god. I uh, see. I'm just I'm trying to be cool like they are, right? You know. Anyway, no, because if you use that sort of teenage slang, that just instantly makes you cool. Anyway, uh, <laughs> sorry. Okay, so over the years though, that's improved. Now the Yahoo data in Australia comes from a company called um, WeatherZone. And what they do is they actually draw their data from a multitude of organizations in the Asia-Pacific region. One of them is the Bureau of Meteorology, but they have their own meteorologists that interpret and model the data themselves. So that's all well and good, but even so, I don't use the native weather app on my phone because I find it to be the Yahoo data, even though it's coming from WeatherZone and everything, is still not as good or not as accurate as the Bureau, Bureau of Meteorology. So I actually use Pocket Weather, which is uh, by Shifty Jelly. And they, uh, what they do is they poll, you know, from, this is just from their blog. They poll various FTP, FTP and um, HTTP sites from the Bureau of Meteorology at various intervals during the day. They pass all of that data and that's what is the, the data is that that's the data that they use in Pocket Weather. So everything they do is purely just a window into the Bureau of Meteorology because the BOM website is really not very, that great. Um, yeah, the same here in the U.S. the 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 National Weather Service, which is run by NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmosphere Administration, their website looks straight out of 1994. Um, yeah, yeah. Bomb is but to their credit, all all of the data that they have available, they give to you on the website. You can get at everything because it's yeah. taxpayer funded. Um, sure. But and some of some of the the products they put out. Are, are look really really horrible as far as the quality of the map and what the colors are and everything but um 
they give you everything. They present you all of the data that they themselves are using to predict. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And the the problem that I've got though in Australia is that it's great that that data is up there. It's all there, just like you're saying for um, National Weather Service. Same here in Australia with the Bureau of Meteorology. All the data is there, but you know, pocket. Uh, the, the software here can sh- display that information, but we don't have dark sky in Australia. We don't have some of the short-term modeling stuff. And, you know, still, uh, the models aren't that great. And it's mainly because there's a massive area. Australia is a, is a big country. In terms of service area, it's really not that much smaller than the United States. And the population is a fraction of, of, the, of that. It's, it's like a tenth, if that. And, less and most of your population is on the coasts. That's it, exactly. Yeah. So all of the weather stations, or the vast majority of the weather stations, uh, basically we can't afford. Well, the the government is not going to put money into putting weather stations absolutely everywhere all over the countryside because they are inaccessible because they're nowhere near populated centres. Yeah, you know, which makes them expensive to maintain and they would be, to yeah, install. Be hard to get out to to prepare. Absolutely. So all in all those reasons, all the same sorts of reasons why everything like, you know, telecommunications is more expensive here, all that sort of all those reasons apply to weather forecasting. So I do feel it's unfortunate, but that's just I think I don't think we'll ever get apps like Dark Sky in Australia. I don't think we'll ever get that. It's I'm just, curious, which way does your jet stream flow? Do you, does your weather pretty much come west to east or is it east to west? Uh west to west to east so it's most of the weather is coming off of the indian ocean onto the continent crossing the continent before it gets to the population generally yes generally yes the the fronts tend to move up also from typically from south uh to north so okay that's 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 that would that would blow my mind because we (laughs) most of our fronts come in yeah come in from the west i mean come sometimes they'll come from the southwest or northwest but it's usually a westerly direction we we have rare instances where there'll there'll be weather coming from the east or something usually that's related to a a storm coming off the atlantic but uh, whenever it happens and you look at the radar and it's going the other direction you're like whoa that's weird (laughs) yeah yeah there there is an there is an effect at the equator where there is a swirling effect and that sort of we're not close enough to the equator to get too much of that Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, in any case, it's uh, yeah, it, it is interesting. But before we get into, because I want to start to admit it, some ex- some extreme weather, which we sort of touched on briefly before, but I want to go a little more depth about that. Before we do talk about that, I just want to talk about our second sponsor for the episode, which is uh, LifeX, spelled L-I-F-X, and it's a smart light bulb that gives you previously unheard of control of your lighting. Each light bulb is Wi-Fi enabled and can give you light in whatever color of the rainbow you like. It's an energy efficient LED light bulb that you can control with an app on your smartphone. It's got over a thousand lumens available and it's incredibly bright. It only consumes 18 watts of power. That's at maximum, though most rooms will only use about half that. So controlling the brightness, color, and there's a range of cool effects. It's very easy on a smartphone, uh, on your smartphone with the LifeX uh, app. And it's made, to, and the light bulb itself is made to last. They've rated for about 27 years of operation, and that's at four hours a day, which is equivalent to 40,000 hours. So you're going to be moving house before you're going to be changing the light bulb, basically. The LifeX bulbs ports both standard Edison screw and bayonet connectors and will work at all standard voltages around the world between 100 and 240 volts AC. It has a developer-friendly SDK currently available for iOS, Android, and Ruby, which means that if you can think of a great way to control them, you can go out and build it on whatever platform you like right now. 
In fact, there's currently a competition open to developers until the 25th of July this year. So if you submit an app by that deadline, you'll be in the running to win enough LifeX bulbs to fill every light socket in your house, as well as get free advertising for your app through LifeX. Check out blog.lifex.co for more information and be quick because that's closing really soon. Now, I've been testing some demo bulbs and my kids <laughs> took control and had a little had a little mini disco uh, in the in the lounge area. They had a great time, actually. It was, it was a lot of fun and uh, my wife's uh, 40th birthday party is coming up in a few days and we're going to be uh, doing something rather similar then. So, they are a lot of fun and I, I really do enjoy them. So, uh, LifeX bulbs are shipping today for only $99 US with free shipping worldwide. Simply head over to LifeX, that's spelled L-I-F-X dot co slash pragmatic to learn more and enter the coupon code pragmatic for 15% off the total price of your order. Thank you to LifeX for sponsoring the show. Okay. So, b- b- before we move on to uh, extreme weather, I just wanted to touch a little bit on the, the computing power of models and just what yeah, goes please. into... Uh, uh, you know, we talk about you, you're getting all of these different data points. Um, one of the, the problems, of course, is the more data you need, the more computing power you need. Um, and, and I had came across a, doing a little research prior to the show, I'd came across an article that, that is about a year old, and I couldn't find any more recent information on this. So, you know, take this with a grain of salt. Things might have changed since this was put out. This was as of August 2013. But it basically said that the uh, GFS model, um, which is the um, the glo- which stands for Global Forecast System, which is the official model that the U.S. government uh, uh, funds as a part of NOAA, um, is currently run on a supercomputer out of Reston, Virginia, which is nicknamed Tide. And it has uh, 213 teraflops. And looking at the, um, there's a there's a great little website called uh, top500.org, which keeps track of the top 500 supercomputers in the world. Um, based on that teraflop ranking, that would rank it somewhere around number 180 to 200 on the supercomputer list. Um, and this article also stated that uh, they were planning to upgrade this computer in 2015 from 213 teraflops up to 19, uh, 1950 teraflops, which yeah. based on the that supercomputer list would bump it somewhere into, you know, fr- from the upper hundreds and, and 200 range down to, hold on a second, I want to get the, this an accurate number. Um, oh, it'd be a, it would be above 100. It would be, that would put it in the top 30 of supercomputers wow. in the world. Well, actually, based on teraflops, that would put it somewhere, and th- this, is as, this is as of June 2014, the list I'm looking at, this, it, this would put it at ranking number 16 to 17 for, mm-hmm. for the top supercomputer. Now, granted, by the time 2015 rolls around, that list is going to change a lot. Um, and, yes. and they said that when they did the previous upgrade, which took the computer from 90 teraflops to 213, they saw on average of a 15% accuracy bump. Um, in the in the GFS model, um, and I know I know at least for winter weather forecasting, uh, a lot of um, the the winter amateur meteorologists that I uh, there's this great weather forum that I, I use in the winter to track these winter storms. Um, they prefer the European model over the GFS because it's it's a it's a bit more accurate. Although everyone is hopeful for this 2015 upgrade that uh, maybe we, we, our accuracy will bump enough that we're on par with the European model for a change. Now, when I say it's more accurate than European model, 
it's it's like a five to ten percent accuracy difference. It's it does it's not too far behind, but it's enough yeah. behind that um, if if the GFS is sometimes saying that we're going to maybe get fifteen inches of snow and the Europeans saying we're going to get nine inches of snow, chances are it's going to be more like nine to ten inches rather than fourteen to fifteen. You know. Yeah, I understand. Well, I mean, it's just that that's the wonderful thing is that. I know that some people wonder, what on earth do you use a supercomputer for? Well, guess what? <laughs> this is what you use them for. Right. This is actually practically useful. Um, you know, which is, you know, one of the reasons I want to talk about it on the show. So well thank you thank you for listening out that stuff because I um I I was hoping you would. <laughs> yeah, so, and I I on. have no idea about any of the other supercomputers for the other systems. I'm sure that the information's out on the web somewhere if you, oh, sure. if, you if you did a few Google searches, but uh um, mm-hmm. I just found that interesting because I knew it was a big computer. I just didn't know exactly uh, the numbers on it. Sure. Now I'm 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 glad we talked about that because, yeah, there there is a lot of com- grunt mathematical computing power, just raw power that goes into predicting the weather these days, and people still complain about it. But anyway, okay. So extreme weather, and I guess specifically when I say extreme weather, I'm not talking about small localized storms, I'm talking about the two big ones, which are uh, tornadoes, quite quite obviously, and of course, they're, they're bigger brothers, the uh, cyclone slash hurricane slash, slash, uh, slash typhoon, uh, you know, which are basically just big bad tornadoes, they don't spin, as, they don't blow as fast uh, generally in the middle, but they have such a huge area that that sort of brings its own set of problems. So, the thing is, I just want to just quickly touch on the whole naming conventions because, you know, you'll have people say, oh yeah, cyclone's different from a hurricane and that's different from a typhoon. Well, no, they're not. They're just different names for the same things. Different parts of the world call them different things. And the funny thing is also that uh, and there's a link in the show notes to there's a good Wikipedia article that goes through all the differences. And it's a, there's a table that shows all the different wind speeds between which and, and, and the wind speeds are usually rated at uh, one minute sustained, 10 minutes sustained uh, and peak gusts. So you look at this table and it'll show you, well, between this range and this range of speeds, then that is called in this part of the world, it's called a hurricane category one. It's called a cyclone category two. It's called a typhoon. It's called a severe typhoon. Yeah, it's called a tropical depression. Depending upon where you are, what lingo they use is all based on how fast the speed is at the eye of the storm, uh, pretty much, and the, and the wind gusts and such. So that's the first one. So Because I had someone tell, try to convince me years ago that they were different. So I, somehow a cyclone was different from a hurricane. It's like, no, it's, no. <laughs> it's just a different name for the same thing. Uh, fortunately, tornadoes are generally called tornadoes wherever you are. I think it's certainly in it, that I'm aware of, anyhow. But uh, yeah, you'll occasionally see some of them referred to as water spouts. Um, oh, sure. And 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 you, which is basically a tornado, but it exists over. You know, you'll see them off the coast of, yeah. um, you know, off the beach. Sometimes Florida, for Florida here in the U.S. gets a lot of them off, like say, you know, down near Miami or or or. Mm. Uh, Daytona or you know off the coast we just had a tornado or not tornado a hurricane come through very recently that was the first storm of the season that uh started off the coast of Florida and came up the coast and 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 grazed the outer banks of North Carolina as it passed by and there were quite a few water spouts that were created off the coast as it kind of uh you know ventured its way up the east coast uh, along the uh the Atlantic seaboard 
Yeah, I think the most dangerous part about water spouts is if there's lots of sharks in them and you get a Sharknado. That's, <laughs> right. That is yes, truly terrifying. Of course, we cannot you know, and, forget and that And if, if there ever movie. is a time, if there's ever a time when you find yourself in that situation, apparently a chainsaw is all you need to survive <laughs> being I, swallowed by a shark. I'm happy to say, or, or I guess unfortunate enough to say, that, that I actually did not see that movie, but I think basically... By viewing my Twitter stream while it was going on, I felt like I saw the movie. Joel, you have not lived, mate. You have not lived until you've seen that movie and you have just been aghast at the fact that they made that movie. And even more shocked that they've made a second one. Yeah. That I'm I'm so looking forward to seeing so that I can laugh at it and it's (laughs) going to be brilliant. Anyhow. Okay, so Sharknadoes to one side. We're going to stick with Tornadoes <laughs> and Hurricanes. <laughs> so we'll stick with those. Okay, so... Mm, sorry. I was going to say, I, I didn't grow up with, with... We don't have as many Tornadoes here on the... Uh, the at least in the East Coast of Virginia um, as sure. they, they do out in the Midwest. And most of my experience with Tornadoes um, were related to Hurricanes. Usually the Tornadoes here will happen when we have a hurricane coming off the Atlantic and that Hurricane's rotation will cause smaller rotations smaller vortices to form and and cause tornadoes in the area i remember um about the mid 2000s there was a particularly strong hurricane called hurricane ivan that hit the gulf coast and then came up through uh you know came up through the southern u.s and up the up the coast over the land It, it didn't go back out over the ocean but the storm was strong enough that it caused tornadoes all up and down the coast as it made its way up up the coast um, and we had quite a bit of them here in Virginia, and quite a bit for us is you know half a dozen. We don't get a lot of them, and I have I have sure. a lot less experience with with I've never seen a tornado in person. I've been near one when one has been a few miles away, but but I've never you know actually seen the effects of it directly. Now my wife, she grew up in Indiana, mm. um, and all through her growing up. In school, they were made to, to, to practice tornado drills, and there are tornado sirens, and, and the children are instructed, you know, to, to get, you know, the safe places within a building you can get in order to, to protect yourself in the event that one happens. In, in, yes. in contrast, here in Virginia, we don't even have tornado sirens. Um, and, and this is something that once we were married and there was a tornado nearby, she's like, why aren't the sirens going off? I'm like, what are you talking about? We do not have tornado sirens here. And no. she was horror struck, like, really? This is awful, you know. Um, How can you not it, have them? Right, exactly. <laughs> she's like, this is irresponsible, you know. It's That's like, right. we really don't have tornadoes here. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'll echo that sentiment because we don't generally get tornadoes in Australia. And um, we, we had an incident uh, only a year and a half ago uh, where an ex-tropical cyclone uh, triggered a bunch of water spouts just off the coast and mm-hmm. one or two of them actually touched down on land. They were gone inside 60 seconds. They were really, really brief. Right. But it was the same kind of thing. The, but the really big bad tornadoes require this, that right set of circumstances geographically, which, yeah. of course, is why they call you know the center of the United States Tornado Alley because that, that's one of the parts of the earth where all of the conditions are right to create tornadoes. So, uh, bottom line is, just real quickly, to compare and contrast, you know, hurricanes, cyclones, you know, they're huge. They cover hundreds of kilometers or miles in area. You know, the the, the wind speeds in the center do not get anywhere near as fast as in a tornado. So, you're looking at a Category 3 cyclone, for example, hurricane, similar, you know, kind of wind speeds. 
greater than 130 kilometers an hour, which is greater than 80 miles per hour, uh, one minute sustained wind speeds, and you're going to cause you know damage to your house. Whereas uh, even a small tornado like an F1 or the modified F1 uh, scale is going to cause damage to your house. But the difference is tornadoes are highly localized. So it's possible for a small tornado to rip through a suburb and take out five houses. But if you've got a cyclone that's blowing at those sorts of wind speeds, it's going to take out all of the houses or most of them. Right. So and yeah. so so the the two scales that these these types of storms are measured on is the yeah. tornado scale is measured on something called the Fujita tornado damage scale, which was developed in 1971 by um, Theodore Fujita uh, at the University of Chicago. Um, and and basically, the way tornadoes are rated are on a scale from F zero to F five. Um, and an F zero, uh, and you'll have to help me out here with metric, but F zero is basically anything less than seventy three miles per hour. Um, yeah. An F F one is seventy three to one twelve. Mm-hmm. An F two is one thirteen to one fifty seven. An F three is one fifty eight to two o six. An F four is two o seven to two sixty. And an F5 is 261 to 318. And, of course, there have actually been tornadoes measured at F5 above 318. But, but they're super, super, super rare. Now, to contrast that, the, torna- the, the hurricane scale is known as the Saffir-Simpson hurricane scale, um, mm-hmm. which uh, uh, was, was developed, I think, by two people whose names were Saffir and Simpson. So, thus, they share the name. Um, and and you will hear, hear hurricanes uh, referred to as category one to two to three to four to five. And just to contrast that, a a category one hurricane is seventy four to ninety five miles per hour. Um, a category two is ninety six to one ten. A three, which a three is a category three hurricane, is is known as the first major size hurricane. Is a one eleven to two one twenty nine. A four is one thirty to one fifty six. And a five is one fifty seven or higher. So uh, a, a category five hurricane, which is known as the most intense uh, uh, a, a size hurricane, which um, on the scale is listed as catastrophic damage will occur. A high percentage of framed homes will be destroyed, with total roof failure and wall collapse. Fallen trees and power poles will isolate residential areas. Power outages will last for weeks and possibly months. Most areas will be uninhabitable for weeks or months. So that's at 157 mile per hour wind. Comparing that to tornadoes, a 157 mile per hour wind tornado is only an F2. So it yeah. goes up to F3, F4, F5. So so um, even the largest, most destructive hurricanes is just a mid-sized tornado as far as wind speed. Yeah, that's it. But the thing that's interesting is that everyone looks at the damage that the different storms will cause and they'll right. say, oh, wow, these tornadoes are terrible because they're, they're ripping everything apart. But what they don't see it, or, or is less visible perhaps is the fallout afterwards. And right. the fallout from a cyclone, hurricane, typhoon is always greater in terms of um, things like localized flooding, uh, widespread damage to essential services. So, I mean, a tornado will take out you know, worst case, maybe a suburb or two. I don't know. But yeah, a small town, if it's a small yeah, town, a small, or a small, or, town, or a small, small section of a large town, you know. Yeah. And it, don't, don't get me wrong, that's terrible. And I, I seriously, you know, in all of this, I don't want to make light of the fact, you know, people die in these extreme weather events, okay? that's it, it's, it's a horrible, terrible thing. Don't, do not misunderstand what I'm trying to point out here. All I'm saying is that it's a different set 
of tragedies and the tragedy of uh, of a cyclone in in my experience has been uh, the constant ongoing winds for you know hours right. or days at a time it just overhead power lines just get destroyed absolutely destroyed and so you then you're without power for you know days weeks at a time uh, so I, I read I read to you the 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 description of the damage of a top hurricane the description yeah. of the damage of a top tornado an f5 reads as saying strong frame houses are leveled off foundations swept yeah. away automobile sized missiles fly through the air in excess of a uh, hundred yards trees are debarked the yeah. bark is stripped off the tree um, and then it just sums up by saying incredible phenomena will occur um, yeah and, and so you don't get that level of damage in a hurricane but like for instance uh, and again I this is my personal experience on the east coast uh, down in in North Carolina there's a little spit of land that sticks out from the coast referred to as the outer banks it's basically uh, a string of sandbars that that are strung together by a road um, and the little islands are connected and and there's a lot of uh, it's a great vacation spot there's tons of beach houses rental properties that sort of thing but uh, the the that land that little spits of sandbars are so far out from the the main shore that there's a quite a large sound in between those sandbars and the actual mainland um, and one of the problems that the outer banks has is when a hurricane comes through is not the the wind damage I mean granted you get wind damage and and that sort of thing but the problem is, all of that wind from this giant rotating storm is forcing the water off of yeah. the ocean through the inlets into that sound. And the, and the mm-hmm. sound depth, which is normally only like four, five, six, ten feet at most, will yeah. rise to, say, 15 or 16 feet. And then when the storm passes over and the wind shifts, because remember, it's, it's a swirling cyclone, and when, when yep. it passes overhead, the wind will shift from being one direction to the other, and it will yep. start to suck that water back out of the sound. And there's so much water, and there's not anywhere for it to go, that rather than it going out the inlets, it will go over the land and, yes. and push everything back out to sea. Or, or in the case of the banks, which the problem they've been having over the last couple of years is it's been making new inlets. It, it, yeah. it's, it cut the it split the island in half um mm-hmm. and 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 they've had to build a temporary bridge um over this spot which luckily with this last hurricane it, it didn't do very much damage to they were able to repair it fairly quickly um yep. but but the the and the banks there are houses there that that 15 years ago there was a house there and now that's that's the ocean um you so, know part of that yeah. island is now gone um, yeah. for just from a, a erosion. Um, the, the, yeah, hurricane, the most of the damage is just what they call, they refer to a storm surge, um, yes. which is, which is the, the, the water coming on shore from, from, you know, these strong winds over like a 400 mile area, just pushing the ocean up onto the land. And then when the storm recedes of it all flowing back out, almost like a very slow, methodical, deliberate tsunami. Except yes. in coming in, in one big wave, it's it's steady over a twelve-hour period. Mm-hmm. Exactly right, and storm surges cause a lot of damage, uh, particularly you know because wherever they, uh, in order to actually gain and maintain their strength, cyclones, hurricanes, typhoons, they they need a body of water that's got you know that, that's warm in order to actually maintain their intensity. So, what typically happens is once they cross. Uh, onto land they very very quickly lose speed they lose energy and they start to die so 
inevitably the storm surge and the coastal areas are the ones that are hit the worst. So, yeah, and that's that's typically the way it goes. But when they do devolve, they turn into what we would call a tropical low or a tropical rain depression. They can still cause flooding from that point. It's just the wind is less of an issue. Uh, yeah, so and it's just re- it's just inland. the fact that you know they can dump ten inches of rain on a small localized spot in a short amount yes. of time. You know, exactly, exactly. So, so, so one other one other issue you were saying about um, you know uh, the, the, as they come on shore, you know they, they will dissipate. Also, uh, I actually um, was unfortunate enough to miss out on this just this past hurricane. Um, the, I keep mentioning the Outer Banks. Uh, some very good friends of mine were actually vacationing there when the storm hit. And okay. my wife and I were supposed to be there with them. And, and, and due to uh, personal circumstances, we, we weren't able to go with them this year. Um, but they, they elected to ride out the storm. They did not evacuate inland, and they just stayed in their beach house through the storm. And the reason okay. they did so was that when, when um, of a hurricane, you'll see, you'll see a hurricane, like the photo on, on radar of this massive storm that stretches like it's equivalent of two or three states in size. So you, you know, in states or provinces, I'm not sure how big your, your provinces or your local areas of government are in Australia, but in the U.S. at least, um, you know, uh, a hurricane, sometimes when you overlay it over top of the U.S., it'll take up like two or three states worth of landmass. So this is a massive storm, but generally the really strong winds, the hurricane force winds, are are at least on a a category one or two or three size storm, are generally right around the center of the storm, right around the hurricane's eye. That's the the strongest part. And at least on the Gulf, when the landmass is to the north of the storm, or uh, on the Atlantic coast when it's to the west of the storm, there are parts of the land that where the eye hits that that say 30 miles down the beach to the left will will only experience say 50 to 60 to 70 mile per hour winds where 30 yeah. miles to the beach to the right will get 110 mile per hour winds because of depends on the side of the eye that that you're on when it comes ashore and they yes. lucked out and their beach house was on the 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 quote good side of the eye the the, the yeah. west side of the eye because at that point the 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 eye had came on shore blown over the shore rotated and was coming back off the shore and it had lost enough strength where they only experienced uh between 50 and say 75 which is like a, a weak category one strength wind um and just up the coast from them 30 or 40 miles away up at cope cape lookout they received category two some category three force wind so so right. you know between 100 and 120 miles per hour um and and where he said that they were at their their house you know uh you know these are elevated beach houses uh you know kind of on stilts he said the house shook a little bit the window shook a little bit it rained a lot it wasn't that big of a deal um whereas up the coast there was like you know major storm surge and major property damage, and so so you, you'll have inter- interesting phenomena like that with with hurricanes based on where you're at relative to the eye and where it comes on shore. Mm-hmm. Cool. So just because um, you brought up a couple of ex- um, couple of cyclone uh, or hurricane experiences there, just tell you about a couple of mine. Just just the two. Um, well, we'll see, maybe three. See, I grew up in in a town called Rockhampton and it's right on the Tropic of Capricorn. So we are on the southern edge of where cyclones will typically uh, come ashore. So Rockhampton, though, is a 45, 40 kilometers, something like that, inland from the actual coast, which is about 30 miles inland, something like that. And um, 
as a result, it's usually taken the edge off by the time it gets into this to the town. Anyway, so in uh, 1991, uh, ex-tropical cyclone uh, Joy basically crossed the coast north of Rockhampton, well, relatively north, but it dumped all of its rain on the catchment area for the Fitzroy River. And the Fitzroy River is the river that goes through uh, Rockhampton. And it was the uh, third largest flood event in recorded uh, settled history. And I say settled history since, you know, since white settlement, you know, since um, it was settled there in like 18, early 1800s, wherever it was, I don't know. Anyway, so that was uh, quite an interesting experience uh, because the city was cut off for three weeks because of flooding. So there were the, the airport is built on low-lying land, so they couldn't take off or land any planes. So that was you know, interesting. There was another one in, I think it was 93, and it basically was another cyclone. By the time it got to us, it was an ex-tropical cyclone, but it was still gusting pretty impressively. And it rained for essentially what felt like about three weeks. It was less than that, but it was about two weeks and two days, I think. But it did literally just rained. And it's a, it was always that it was a driving rain that you get in a cyclone where it's just like wave after wave, and it's just it, I don't know how to describe it, but you know what we I mean. We experienced, it's, yeah, we experienced the same sort of thing with when Hurricane Sandy. I don't know if you remember yes. when that. Yeah, so yep. Sandy was a, a weird circumstance where uh, it's formed as a hurricane in the Caribbean. It came up the coast well out to sea, and then right as it passed by Washington D.C. and Baltimore. It just took a left, a hard left-hand turn and crashed into the coast um, right yeah. around New York City. And it was large enough that uh, as it got up the coast kind of due east to us, um, for about a 16, 18-hour period, we were, we were buffeted by its bands, the different bands as it came on shore. And we were at the time living in a, in a condo unit that was on the first floor of the building that was a corner unit. So we had windows facing, I believe, north and windows facing to the east. Um, and for the first, say, 8 to 12 hours of, of these bands coming in, uh, the rain was pretty much blowing steadily up against the east face of the building, um, almost like horizontal rain coming right into to, to the windows. Um, and then as the storm got further north and made its turn, um, and due to the way it rotated, all of the, weather, the wind was coming in from the north-northwest. Um, and we had uh, leaking in our condo under the windows because this building was about 15 to 20 years old and the caulking around the window had, had kind of you know cracked and dry rotted. And that horizontal rain forcing into those cracks where the caulking forced rain in under the, the window and actually you know got our carpet wet along the, the walls right on. It was first on the one side of the room as the wind was coming in that way. And then as it shifted, it, it shifted to the other side of the room. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and that, that's like I said, with hurricanes, that that's or cyclones. That's what you get. You know, it's just relentless mm. pounding for hours yeah. and hours and hours. Well, that's right. And, and it's, it's a very different, it, it's a, it's a very eerie experience. The, the fact that, that the sound of that, that the, the wind and the rain just unrelenting. And yeah, it's, it was, it also, more recently, um, we went through that again recently with uh, ex-tropical cyclone Oswald. That was in uh, 2013. And it was so widespread in southeast Queensland. So that, that was actually hit down here in uh, in Brisbane. And 
it was so the damage was so widespread that we personally were out of we had no electricity for about four days and uh, everything in the fridge and freezer spoiled we had to throw it all out and we basically you know if we were fortunate that it was only i say only if you consider greater southeast queensland something like three million or three and a half million people out of the greater southeast area one quarter of houses had their power lost for a period of four or more hours during that uh, that four or five day period we were just unlucky to be in one of the areas that the repair crews got to last or towards the end of the list lucky us anyway so we were without power for four days but fortunately um my in-laws they had power so we, we i remember we went to their place to charge our ipods iphones and so on and uh yeah we ate at their place because we couldn't do anything we had uh we had a barbecue, but the barbecue was waterlogged and yeah, we couldn't get it to fire and to stay fired because it was still, even even after the rain stopped, it was still very windy for a few days afterwards. So keeping something burning was quite a difficult. But anyway, uh, that's nothing, of course, compared to, you know, I've, I've had friends where I grew up who were from Townsville and, you know, and Cairns and they'd been, uh, they'd actually lived through cyclones where they'd lost the roof on their house. So, I mean, this is all nothing compared to, you know, the sort of damage it can do, but... Just to just to, to wrap up quickly on, on on the extreme weather though is that I find that I find cyclones I think do more damage in terms of, of terms of overall net cost but because you tend to see them coming you have an opportunity to prepare you have an opportunity yeah. to get out and evacuate there, you the have tornadoes. many hopefully unless it's a weird circumstance and sometimes there are weird circumstances but most of the time you have minimum three to five days warning sometimes longer than that um, exactly and and, yeah. and 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 if the again if the storm doesn't change a lot and the models do a good job at predicting you know they pretty much know where it's going to hit and what populations are going to be affected and they have an accurate prediction of what the storm surge will be so based on your elevation they'll you know issue evacuation orders at least here in the U.S., they'll issue yeah. evacuation orders along the coast to tell residents to, 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 to you know to get inland a bit at least for the next forty-eight hours to board up the windows of your house, all that sort yeah, of thing. Absolutely, absolutely, exactly the same here. And I find that though, because I actually did, uh, I did some work in uh, in Richardson uh, many years ago, and I was stunned walking along the corridors and you'd see tornado shelter and a little sticker on the next to the doors some of the doors and there's a tornado shelters. And I was down there at a particular time when a, uh, a tornado had actually ripped through Fort Worth, which was not, you know, is not too far away from Dallas. And it was all very fresh. It was only three or four weeks previously. And it was all very fresh in everyone's minds. And I'm, and I, I'm thinking to myself, I'm walking around this building in, uh, in Richardson and thinking, okay, where's the nearest tornado shelter? I've never had to think about this before, but if there was a tornado, that's where I would have to go and hide. And I guess that's the thing that made, makes tornadoes so terrifying is not so much the fact that... I mean, they have highly localized damage, you know. However, the fact that they are far less predictable, you don't see tend to see them coming specifically. That's what makes them, I think, more terrifying. Yeah, and the warning for them can be as little sometimes as 5 to 15 minutes. That's right. Um, and, and just think about all the time during the day um, in which you are... Uh, not near a computer or don't have the TV on or aren't looking at a weather app and and you know let's say you're taking a shower or you're you're doing the dishes or you're in your car listening to a podcast and not you know so so there's so many instances in which 
you know, a storm could be coming in and a tornado, they are sure a tornado is going to hit and they've got five minutes to warn you. But people just don't see the warnings because it's hard to to get a warning out when you only have five minutes notice and get yeah. everyone's attention. Um, yeah, hence, so they hence the tornado be, alarms that you were mentioning. Right, right. Mentioning. And, and, and the, that's how the Midwest copes with it is they just put on these big poles every, you know, in every town around the whole area this yeah. giant siren that goes off and everyone can hear it it's a, they they do it at this it's almost like an air raid siren back yes, from, you know, from right. world war 2 that uh in fact mm-hmm. i think after world war 2 happened they repurposed many of the air raid sirens as tornado sirens um yeah. yeah it's just so everyone in the entire town no matter where you are or what you're doing you can hear the sound of it and so you know you know there's a tornado on the ground somewhere get into shelter yeah that's it so uh, one of the other things just quickly I want to touch on before we wrap up uh, is spaghetti forecasting with regards right. to extreme weather. So that's something that, that you mentioned specifically. You just wanted to have a quick quick chat about. So Spaghetti, this is the, the, the term is spaghetti model. And, and the reason it, it's referred to as a spaghetti model is that uh, when, when the different models will try to predict a cyclone or, or a hurricane, um, it will, you know, with with say a a winter storm or a summer storm, you're mainly trying to figure out where the front's going to move through and what the rainfall amounts are going to be or what the snowfall amounts are going to be, that sort of thing. With a hurricane, you want to figure out where the eye is and where it's going to be. Um, so a spaghetti model will actually plot a colored line on a map to to have that model's prediction of exactly where they think the eye is going to go. And thus they could then predict where the most damage is going to be based on, you know, what I was saying earlier with, you know, on one side of the eye, it'll be less than the other side. So it's still really hard for them to accurately predict more than just a few hours away exactly where that bad side of the eye is going to hit. Um, But the, the way the spaghetti models work is, say, the North American model will plot a line you know, line A, and, and the European model will plot line B, and the, and the Canadian model will pl- plot line C, well then, when you superimpose all of these together over a map, it'll look like strings of, like, say, spaghetti. They're different colored little lines, and, 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 yep. and, and it's all of the different possible routes the models are saying it will take. And just like with this ensemble ma- uh, forecast over land, they generally will take the ensemble of all the lines and average them together to figure out where they they will um, they you know where where the hurricane's gonna gonna go. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, cool. So and I, uh, there's a there's a I'm looking at a, a great map here. Uh, so so there's there's the NOAA maintains a website a section of their website which is known as historical hurricane tracks. And after a hurricane actually happens, they're you know they're able to say, okay, let's throw out all the models. This is the actual route that the eye took, and here's the actual route that every eye of every hurricane has taken over the past ten years. And so this map is wonderful in that it's just it has tons and tons and tons of these little colored lines on it with a name beside each one of showing the route of every hurricane. So you can see generally where they all hit on the coast. And, and you'll occasionally see this little line that's separated from all the others where this one storm took this little weird turn that most of them never take. And that's due to, you know, the butterfly effect. Something in the atmosphere that particular week caused that storm to do something that usually none other storms do, um, which just, again, reinforces how hard it is this, you know, for forecasters, how hard exactly. the job is. 
Exactly. And 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 that's where I would like to to wrap it up right there is is the fact that this is not easy. Predicting the weather is very very difficult. It's a very very complicated problem. In fact, yeah, what you're essentially doing is you're trying to predict the future. And yeah, there's so many inputs, there's so many variables and we don't have the technology to model absolutely every molecule of air in the entire world. Uh, and we don't have, you know, we don't have the computer technology to co- to compute that. We don't have the models. It's just, you know, it's hard. It's very hard. And I feel like, you know, weather prediction is better today than it ever has been in all of human history. And yet, people are still, oh, they say it's going to rain this weekend, but you know, <laughs> whatever, you know. Right. It's like, well, <laughs> you wind the clock back. 20 years, 10 years even, you know, I mean, things have come so far and they're getting better all the time and they'll continue to get better. But ultimately, stop blaming the weather person and I'm careful not to say weather man, uh, weather person because, you know, honestly, weather prediction is hard, very hard. And honestly, um, if if you don't take that away from what we've talked about this episode, then yeah, maybe maybe you haven't been paying attention. <laughs> and, and something else I, w- I would just want to mention, like like if you pull up a, a I I have this I have a, the one app that I use that kind of gives you a general forecast is this one one app called Today, and I like it because it has a very nice little interface. Sometimes its data isn't the greatest, but but I like its interface. Um, like I'm looking at today's weather, it's saying there's a 61 percent chance it's going to rain today. Um, what many people don't realize is that the forecaster will will look at the models and the models will, will basically say, well, this area right here is due to have some rain. So the forecaster will basically draw a little circle around that area and and they'll see based on the model what chance that there's going to be rain somewhere in that area. And when you see there's going to be a 60% chance, that's 60% chance of the small little geographical region that you live in. And that that, that area may be... 10 miles wide, 30 miles wide, 50 miles wide. That depends on your local forecast area. But, and then if later in the day it rains in a couple places in that area, they consider that a successful forecast. Maybe it didn't rain in the exact spot over your house, but it rained in that area and, 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 and it was almost impossible for them to know whether your particular you know, front lawn is going to have rain or not versus, you know, maybe the storm passed and just missed you two miles away. But that that was a successful forecast because it, it's almost impossible without, you know, a lot more data and a lot more computing power before they will be able to do, you know, forecasts that are that accurate. If you'd like to talk more about this, um, you can reach me on Twitter at John Chigi, that's J-O-H-N-C-H-I-D-G-E-Y and check out my writing at techdistortion.com. Uh, if you'd like to send any feedback, please use the feedback form on the website and that's where you'll also find uh, the show notes for this episode under Podcasts Pragmatic. You can also follow Pragmatic Show on Twitter to see show announcements and other related stuff. Um, this episode was uh, proudly sponsored by uh, Many Tricks, and I'd like to thank them for sponsoring the show. If you're looking for Mac software that can do Many Tricks, remember, specifically visit this URL, manytricks, or one word, dot com slash pragmatic for more information about their amazingly useful apps and use the discount code PRAGMATIC25 for 25% off the total price of your order. Hurry, it's only for a limited time. Also, I'd like to thank LifeX for sponsoring this episode. If you're looking for a great LED light bulb that's energy efficient, remotely controllable, colorful, and just plain fun to use, remember to specifically use this URL, LifeX, that's spelled L-I-F-X dot co slash pragmatic, and use the coupon code PRAGMATIC for 15% off the total price of your order. 
And of course, finally, I have to thank Joel for coming on the show. Thank you so much for coming on and talking about the weather. If people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way they should do that? Well, these days I'm I'm pretty Twitter pro- prolific. So at Twitter, I'm just my first name and last name, which is J-O-E-L-H-O-U-S-M-A-N. So it's at Joel Hausman. And then, uh, or you can reach out via the contact form on my website, which is also joelhausman.com. Fantastic. Awesome. We can all stop uh, worrying about whether or not <laughs> it's supposed to be raining and just right. uh, smile and be happy. <laughs> yeah, thanks for having me on. I, I love to get uh, geeky about the weather. Um, our, our local, uh, uh, in my opinion, best weather source is a, is a was a former weather blog. Now they're part of the actual Washington Post's uh, weather a section of their website. There's a few of those guys I follow online. Um, and then I, I warn anyone, if you follow me on Twitter and there's a hurricane about to happen or there's a blizzard in the winter, be prepared for weather tweets. <laughs> cool. Awesome. Well, look, thanks again for coming on and uh, I really appreciate your sharing and, uh, and yeah, thanks again uh, for listening, everyone. Thanks a lot, John. No worries, mate.